it's a wonderful thing to have the opportunity to praise God uh, together and uh, sing his, his praises together. Um, how many of you have read uh, John Newton's biography? He was the author of Amazing Grace. How many that have know John Newton's biography? Oh, okay. That's... Okay, that counts. How many have thought a movie of, of... Oh, yeah, yeah, this is a 21st century. I, you know, I thought about that as I was sitting there. And Okay, so how many of you have read John Newton's letters? Okay, one, two, three, four. If someone asked me, pick ten top ten books that you ought to read... In that list would be the letters of John Newton. Okay, if you want to know how to encourage people who are ill, read the letters of John Newton. You want to know how to share the gospel, read the letters of John Newton. Go on and on. They are wonderful. Okay, none of them are long. They're to various people, but it's excellent. It's a spiritual classic. The English is easy. The letters, the letters of John Newton. And uh, they were called cardiophonia. What does that mean? Cardia, what's that? All right. Phonia, voice. Okay. Utterances from the heart is, would be the translation. Utterances from the heart. That's what this book of letters. So, uh, and, and God uh, used him to author some wonderful, wonderful worship music for us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, uh, verses 18 through 22. We will, we will climb the top, of the, the top of a difficult mountain today, and some of you are relatively new with us. Some of you are visiting. Uh, our subjects are not always this intellectual or this difficult, but we have that kind of a passage before us. And all of the Word of God is valuable for us, and we don't ignore any of it. We seek to deal with all of it. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, without exaggeration, is probably in the top two or three most difficult passages in the New Testament to understand. So we've been on the intellectual side doing the exegesis of this passage, taking our time to try to understand what these words mean. But if the Lord gives me another week to live, uh, we will transition over to some uh, significant practical application. Uh, But right now and and this morning, once again, we're going to grapple with the last uh, verses there, 20 and 21, and uh, how we, we interpret these things. So I'll just read the passage again, and we'll be focusing down around verse 20. Uh, 21 today. Uh, Referring to Jesus, Peter goes there in the middle of verse 18 is where I'm beginning. Oh, I should say one other thing. Our translations differ. We probably have five, six different translations out there right now. And um, they don't all read the same on this passage. And you know you're in a difficult passage when our good translations, our formal equivalent translations, like the ESV or the New King James or the New American Standard, you know you're in a difficult passage when they all render a phrase different. (laughs) It's not for lack of 
translator skill, it's just difficult. And when our very excellent English translations have quite a variation, it's because it's just one of these difficult passages. And what I'm going to read to you is the pieces that we've picked up that we think are the best interpretation. So what I read to you right now, you're not going to find word for word in any one of your translations. But I can assure you, everything that's in here has come out of those translations. And they don't all translate the same. So I thought I should explain that as I read this. So here we go. The beginning of uh, 1 Peter 3.18. Referring to the Lord Jesus. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Lowercase s. Okay? Made alive in the spirit. In which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype. There's also an antitype, which means a correspondence. Antitype means that which corresponds to something. This is the antitype of this, which means this corresponds to this. Okay, this is a key word in our text. And so there's also a correspondence or an antitype. There's also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but an appeal for a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Okay. So, reviewing just a little bit. What did Christ in his exalted and resurrected state proclaim to these evil spirits in prison? Okay, we've already concluded they are evil spirits. We've already concluded they are non-human spirits. And we've also already concluded that they were imprisoned either at the flood or before that. And we've already concluded that it was after Christ's resurrection that he made this proclamation to them. Those things we've worked through. So but what did he proclaim? We talked about that last week. And all three gospel writers show us the showdown between Jesus and the evil spirit world. That showdown between Christ and the evil spirits of the world began at the temptation of Christ. And that's when the showdown began. And Christ victoriously came through the temptation of Satan. And Satan had nothing in him. And we also learned of Jesus's, he returned victorious. And what did he begin to do? He began to cast out demons. They had seen nothing ever like this. His exorcisms were unquestioned. They were instant. Whether it was one demon or a legion of demons. One word from Christ and they were on their faces. And it was Jesus plundering 
Satan's house that Matthew read the, the parable this morning. That's the, the parable. Bind the strong man and then plunder his house. That's Jesus' exorcisms, what he is doing. The strong man is Satan. Jesus, in his first coming, has bound him. And now he begins to rescue humanity out from the dominion and the reign of Satan. Okay? And if you're here a believer this morning, it's because Christ has done that for you. You have not walked out of the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of the world. You have not just decided one day to get up and walk out of that satanic slavery. It's Christ has come and redeemed you. And brought you out. He has transferred you from what? The kingdom of darkness. He has transformed you. He's uprooted you out of the kingdom of darkness. And he's planted you in the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay. And so what did Jesus proclaim to the evil spirits locked up in prison? He proclaimed his victory and their defeat. And the certainty of their judgment. Now that he died and rose and ascended at the right hand of God, that seals the absolute doom of all the principalities and powers and evil spirits. There might have been a question mark whether their doom was sealed or not, and whether our deliverance was assured or not prior to the death and resurrection of Christ. But after the death and resurrection of Christ and his ascension to the right hand of God, it is absolutely certain that their doom is sure. And what he proclaimed in that prison is something down those lines. Okay. And so that's, I believe, the proclamation is in that area. His victory And that occurred when he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and all authority and power given to him, whether in heaven, in the earth, or beneath the earth. That's the prison. So the message was down those lines. We've also considered that these now imprisoned evil spirits were major influences for evil in the pre-flood world, which God destroyed. They were imprisoned before at the time of the flood. Now this morning, we'll go forward around verse 20, and Peter introduces Noah and the flood judgment. This is the first place in the text where Noah and that flood judgment gets introduced, and it's there in verse 20. Peter writes, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Well, what does it mean that eight souls were saved through water? That's our first task here this morning. That's the New King James uh, translation. They were saved through water. 
especially the through. What does the through mean here? They are saved through my... Does it mean that they were saved from the dangers of the water of the flood? Or does it mean that the water was the means of saving them? Those are two very different things. You, you see the question? And it can mean either, okay? Uh, there's no lexical aid or, or grammatical thing that's going to just give you a clear answer. Does that mean they were saved from the dangers of the water? Or does that mean the waters was the means of saving them? I lean to the latter, that the water was the means of saving them. That Peter is saying the water was the means of saving them because of the antitype or the correspondence in verse 21. Eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype or correspondence which now saves us baptism. Okay? So both parts of the antitype have to have the basically the same meaning. They were saved through the water. There's an antitype. Now baptism that, what does he say? He saves us. Don't worry. We're not baptismal regeneration. Just let's get one phrase and term figured out at a time. So both sides of that antitype have to correspond. Okay, and we know it's clear what he's saying. Baptism now saves us. Okay, so we're talking about something that's salvific on both sides. So in other words, what he's saying is the waters of the flood were the means of saving those eight souls. And there's now an antitype just as baptism, the water of baptism is now the means of saving us. That's what he's saying. Okay, so... I lean to the latter, that that's what he means. Let me mention another thing. Now, you see, in order, in order for that correspondence to work, the saved through water must correspond with that which now saves us. I've said it about three times. But in order for that correspondence to work, both of those are referring to something that is salvific. So what he's saying is, as the waters of the flood saved the eight souls, so now baptism saves us. Don't worry about baptismal regeneration. We, we're not going to end there. Okay? He has more to say. Now, in order for that correspondence to work, saved through water, must correspond to that which saves us baptism. Now, a weakness in the interpretation that I prefer is that it is hard to perceive how the floodwaters which destroyed the earth and everyone in it, how those floodwaters can be a means of saving the eight souls. So that's the, that's the difficulty with the interpretation I've given you. However, <laughs> a greater weakness is not to do justice to the antitype correspondence between the two. So I suggest we go with the lesser of two difficulties. So if we go with the lesser of two difficulties, so how could the waters of the flood save eight souls in the ark? Okay, that's the difficulty of the interpretation I'm suggesting. That's the difficulty. Now, if you say the waters were destructive, 
uh, then you destroy the correspondence in that phrase. So I think my difficulty is less than the other uh, than the other difficulty. So how could the waters of the flood save eight souls in the ark? Perhaps by carrying the ark above all the destruction going on below. Okay, they got in that ark, and they did not. They, the water carried them above all the destruction. It's not a pleasant, not a pleasant thing to think about. Okay, they were delivered by the water from everything below that the water destroyed. So we're, that's what I'm going with. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Now, now in the second part of verse 21, Peter explains how baptism saves us. He does some very interesting things here. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now he tells us how baptism saves us. But he tells us two things. He gives us a negative, how baptism doesn't save us, and then he gives us the positive, how it does in that statement. Now, notice first that all translations offset the phrase, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. They offset that phrase either with commas in the English language or some of your translations have dashes. Peter starts out, dash. Then we have this phrase, dash, through the resurrection. Then he resumes. They all set that phrase off aside as an explanatory uh, 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 he introduces an explanatory statement okay he starts to say baptism now saves us pause explanatory statement resumption that's that's the structure of the text so we can follow the main thought by dropping out the explanatory phrase for a moment and reading right across it. And we can read right across it this way. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've, I've dropped out that explanatory phrase in the middle. So baptism saves us, what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, another question. How does the resurrection of Christ suddenly pop up into this matter? You know, Noah was a surprise himself popping up into this paragraph. And now the resurrection of Christ pops up into this paragraph. How is that happening? Why is that happening? In connection to baptism. The resurrection of Christ is popping up into this context in connection to baptism. We know the resurrection of Christ is in this context because of Christ's victory over evil. But in this immediate context, resurrection has popped up here because of he introduces the subject of baptism. 
that occasions the matter of resurrection to come up in this text. You see that? Might tell you, you have to think about that. I know you haven't thought about this as much as I have. <laughs> I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> but I can plant some seeds which you'll start thinking about. So how does that come up? Well, I think the best answer to that question is that Peter and his readers understand that baptism represented or symbolized the resurrection of Christ. There's an aspect of baptism that symbolizes and represents Christ's resurrection. That's how that would likely be understood. Now this we know, of course, what? From Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2. Those are key texts about what the symbolism or the figure or the ordinance, whatever you want to call it, what it represents. And we know one of the things that baptism represents is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You go down, you're buried in the waters, and when you come out of those waters, you're resurrected. You've died with Christ, you've been buried with Him, and Christ Christ rose up from the dead, you are risen up from the dead in newness of life. Okay, so, so that's probably the connection here between baptism as it was practiced in the New Testament and the resurrection of Christ. Baptism symbolizes that. And Peter's emphasis in this passage is not on the death of Christ. It's there. He who suffered in the flesh, the death is there. But his emphasis in this passage is on the resurrection of Christ. And so I think that's how the uh, resurrection comes up into this discussion. So if this is the case, then Peter's thought here is that we are saved by what baptism represents, the resurrection of Christ. We're saved by what baptism represents. That's interpretation on my part. I, I fully agree with that. Christ's resurrection is a theme of this passage. I've already been saying that. And was referred to in verse 18. 18 it was referred to just as in chapter 1 verse 3 if you look those texts up. It is union with the resurrected Christ that results in salvation. And I'm repeating here some. So baptism represents this union in Romans 6, Colossians 2. Now, that was the easy part. That explanatory statement in the middle. We've got to now work on that explanatory statement in the middle. Peter clarifies that the aspect of baptism that saves us is, comma, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, that's the clarification of how baptism saves us. There's a negative. Baptism doesn't save us by the removal of the filth of the flesh. But, see the contrast? doesn't save us that way. But it does save us this way by the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's his explanation. Peter, can we give him a call? Can I text him? Peter, read your text, please. I've got a question. Got a question on this text, okay? Well, we can't do that. Well, one commentator remarks 
Each clause of the contrast is difficult to understand, and both clauses present lexical problems. What is a lexical problem? Meaning a definition of a word. What, is a, what does a word mean? That's a lexical problem. A lex, lexicons are dictionaries, okay? So a lexical problem means we're not sure about the meaning of this word. Or we've got like three options. This word can mean three different things. And we're not quite sure which of those. All languages are like that. And so there's lexical problems here, the meaning of, of some words. A common understanding of the first phrase, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, that's the New King James translation, or ESV translates it this way, not as a removal of dirt from the body. That's the ESV translation. A common way of understanding this phrase is to understand Peter to be saying, what it is about baptism that saves us is not the water which washes away physical dirt from the physical body. What saves us is not a mere religious cleansing ritual involving external water. That isn't what saves us. A a religious cleansing ritual with external washing. He's saying that's not what saves us. Now notice Peter's but, okay? But what does save us is not as a removal. What does save us, let me read this to you, I'll get it. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but, okay, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And this likely is the correct understanding I, I, I think this is the correct understanding as how we are to understand the, the filth or the dirt there. Now, there's a second understanding regarding the term filth. And there's two lexical things going on here. One is the word that's translated dirt or filth. The other is the word that's either translated flesh or body. You notice that in the ESV, they rendered this the body. They didn't use the term flesh. They used the term body. And they didn't use the term filth. They used the term dirt. And this is where this lexical dance is is taking place as to what really is the meaning of the terms that Peter used here. So a second approach here, I call it, it deserves an honorable mention The term filth or dirt can be used in a figurative sense, referring to moral filth. And if you read the Greek version of the Old Testament, here's an example of how the term is used in a figurative sense. And in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4, we read this. It illustrates this. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. That's our term. Obviously, the washing away of the filth is not saying, you know, you haven't taken a shower uh, (laughs) soon enough. No, it's being used figuratively, isn't it? The term is being used for moral defilement. 
So, Peter could say, baptism now saves us, not the removal of moral defilement. So, along with this matter is how we should understand the Greek term sarks in 1 Peter 3.21, which means flesh. Now, does sarks simply mean one's physical body? Or does it mean our corrupted human nature? As it does in the expression like Ephesians 2.3. Paul writes, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, in the lust of our sarks, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, the sarks. In other words, sarks often doesn't mean physical body. Now, what makes this complicated, of course, there are some occasions when sarks does mean physical body. Okay? So it isn't that simple. There are some cases where it does mean physical body. And sometimes that's dependent on the author, isn't it? Now when you read Paul, Sarks is corrupted human nature, not isolated to just physical body. So can be used both ways. Now, if Peter... Oh, one other thing in defense. I'm still going with the first interpretation, but I'm showing you some of the difficulties. In, in honorable mention here, number, number two here, honorable mention, is if Peter wanted, if I were arguing the second position, which I'm not, but I'm just showing you some of the intricacies of this text. If Peter wanted to say body, he could have used soma. There's a perfectly fitted Greek word that means physical body. And it's the word soma. But he didn't use soma here. He used sarks. So that's what makes this even more a little dicey. You can come along and say, no, what Peter meant here was not external cleansing. No, he meant moral defilement. Baptism, not the removal of moral defilement. You could argue that. You could argue that's what he meant here. Now, that's not going to change much in the passage, except it's going to give you the difficulty to say, okay, what did Peter mean then about baptism now saves you, but not the removal of moral defilement from your life? Okay, where are you going to go with that? And that's why I don't prefer the second. (laughs) Because now where are you going to go with that? What is he talking about there then? I mean, maybe if you went that way, you could say, well, we're not saved by reforming our lives. Baptism now saves us not by reforming your life, not by removing moral filth from your life. I, I mean, you could maybe go that way. Okay, so um, continuing with Peter's clarifying statement, the aspect of baptism that saves us is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. 
through the resurrection of Christ. Now, we are now in the realm of Christian experience associated with the beginning of the Christian life, aren't we? He's talking now about Christian experience. The answer, the answer of a good conscience. He's now moved into the realm of Christian experience in that expression. And keep in mind that during New Testament times, baptism was administered to converts immediately upon their reception of the gospel. There was almost no separation. They were believing in Christ and calling upon Him to save them, and they were baptized. It all happened right there together, both things. And here's... Here we're faced with lexical difficulties again regarding the verb answer. New King James uses the term the answer of a good conscience. The New American Standard uses the term, and the ESV uses the term, an appeal for a good conscience. So is this the answer of a good conscience? Or is this an appeal for a good conscience? And the NIV used the term pledge. A pledge of a good conscience. Now, I'm not an English grammarian or a Greek grammarian, but I know enough that those three terms are not synonyms. Okay, those three terms are nuts. So I can't get out of it here by saying, well, these things all basically mean the same thing. No, they don't. All three of those terms, when it comes to what is the experience that he's talking about, are very different. A pledge versus an appeal are very different things. Versus an answer. Those are all three very different things. So we can't get out of here by saying, well, they're just synonymous things. Well, they're not. They're not to be, you know, to be faithful. So, so we've got these three terms. Using answer, those using answer bring into this discussion the practice that candidates for baptism were questioned. And if they answered correctly, they were baptized. Okay, and they say what we have here is like a formula. Of, of early baptism, how they practice it. And, and they were questions, and they answered uh, with a clear conscience. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about here. But lexically, that is really weak. Because to get from a question, and that's kind of what this word means. This word has questioning in it, not just answering. In order to get from question, one meaning of the Greek term here, to answer, requires two to three inferences, which I won't explain here, but the reasoning is just not persuasive. That's why almost all New English translations don't go with the term answer in this text any longer. I'm not going to go through all that with you. That would take 10 or 15 minutes. So that leaves us with pledge and appeal. Well, I think there are problems with pledge. If we chose pledge or promise of a clear conscience toward God, what does it mean? 
to promise a clear conscience toward God. And is that what saves us? I don't think so. (laughs) He's telling us what saves us in this text. And I don't think it's a pledge. So, often the answer again gets related, in this case also, gets related to the idea that the candidate for baptism is questioned and responds by making a pledge in public. Now, the idea that the person pledges to be faithful to follow Christ, that's kind of the idea here, if it's pledge. A person makes a public pledge to follow Christ. The problem is, this is efficacious in this text. The but is efficacious as to what saves us. The washing away of the dirt does not save us, but this phrase saves us. What this phrase describes is efficacious for salvation. You see, that's the difficulty in this text. One of them. One of many of them. So, I want to clarify something else here. I I think we can reject the pledge on the basis that no other New Testament text and the theology of the New Testament ever indicates that a promise to live a righteous life is that which saves us. Now, It's one thing to confess your faith in Christ in public in reference to being questioned when you're baptized. Amen. That's completely fine. To confess your faith in Christ when you're being baptized. Or even sometimes people who are baptized, they have the ritual, you ask them questions. And they confess their faith. That's absolutely fine. Completely fine with that. Confessing your faith is different from making a pledge. So that leaves us with the third option, appeal, which is the way the New American Standard and the ESV goes with the term appeal, the verb appeal. They translate it here. The New American Standard reads this, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so now those translations have this experience of an appeal to God for, for a clear conscience. So I prefer that route. This represents an inward transaction between God and the individual, right? What saves is when a person makes an earnest appeal to God for a clear conscience, which would be based upon God's promise of salvation in Christ. My conscience is not clear, and what do we do? You make an appeal to God to have your conscience clear, cleansed, whatever. Okay, And that's where the ESV and the NASB take us. And I think that's, personally, I think that's the best place to be taken. Wayne Grudem concludes, quote, 
Peter's phrase, quote, an appeal to God for a clear conscience, is another way of saying, quote, a request for forgiveness of sins and a new heart. When God gives a sinner a clear conscience, that person has the assurance that every sin has been forgiven and that he or she stands in a right relationship with God. This is following the appeal language. How does all this relate to baptism? Grudem summarizes this way, and I think correctly, quote, to be baptized rightly is to make such an appeal to God. It is to say, in effect, please God, as I enter this baptism, which will cleanse my body outwardly, I am asking you to cleanse my heart inwardly, forgive my sins, and make me right before you. Understood in this way, baptism is an appropriate symbol for the beginning of the Christian life. And and I agree. And I I agree it is a symbol. All right. Summary. You still with me? (laughs) I told you, this is the hardest. I said we're at the top of the mountain here as far as this. But you know, we talked about going into the mental gymnasium. Our generation doesn't spend very much time in the mental gym. We need to, we need to get that back. The mental gymnasium is a, is a good place to be. So here's a bit of a summary. I'm probably repeating here a lot. I mentioned that we could read the text without the explanatory phrase, and doing so shows us Peter's main thought. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His focus is on saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Two, the explanatory interruption ensures we avoid coming to the conclusion that the external rite of water baptism saves us by explicitly negating any special effects simply by being washed in water that removes dirt from the body. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you not as the removal of the dirt from the flesh. He explicitly negates that way of thinking. Third, the focus lands on the but. The but phrase which defines what does save us, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. That's what saves us. The but phrase. And that last thing. An appeal from one's heart for salvation to God. This salvation is provided to us, what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the appeal. How is that salvation provided? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Peter is saying. You get that salvation through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. No problem there. Four. Baptism, when properly administered and received, represents the appealer's union with Christ in his death and resurrection, which is how God has saved the individual being baptized. And the individual being baptized has made and 
continues to make this appeal to God for a clear conscience. Every time you sin and your conscience is guilty, you make this appeal, don't you? If you're a Christian, you make that appeal. You appeal to God for a clear conscience because you sinned. So that is a process which starts at your conversion and it continues throughout all of your Christian life because we still do sin and our consciences are not clear and we go back always to the same place. We appeal to God for that. Five applications next week, Lord willing. (laughs) 12.03, unless this is 10 minutes behind like it was once, but I don't think it is. Okay, so we respect all of the Word of God, and for various reasons we need to grapple with this. There's also an apologetic reason I said at the beginning of these three messages. This passage has been used to justify all kind of false doctrines. And some of them are fatal. Like there's a second chance for salvation after you die. This is one of the proof texts that, you know, you're going to get asked. You know, spirits in prison. These are human spirits in prison. And, and Christ went and preached the gospel to them. Recently, uh, James White was uh, engaged with a universalist. No, no, it was, it was the purgatory debate. No, 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 no. It was, it was a universalist. It was actually, yeah, he was engaged with a full-blown universalist. And this was a universalist text. This was one of, one of his texts right here. That's, it was. So that's another reason that we need to be familiar uh, with these texts to help people, perhaps, that are tangled up in, in a wrong understanding of these places. Let's pray. Lord, oh wow, our, our hope is not in that we're so smart <laughs> or get everything right. But Lord, thank you for all of your word and thank you for the clarity of it in many, many places. And uh, we ask your help and your patience in places where things are not clear. But Lord, give us an attitude and a spirit that we are we're committed to submit to wherever your word leads us and help us have that attitude. And Lord, the spiritual enemies are many. Oh, how we thank you for Christ's victory over them. And so help us, protect us, Lord. Protect our minds, our hearts, our actions. And deliver us from false and evil ways. Lord, we depend on you. We'd be lost if you did not keep us. We thank you that you are the great, great, good shepherd. And that you lose none of your sheep. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in Your name. Amen.